welcome you this morning as we've uh, met together to worship and uh, um, don't forget on uh, on the 18th we will uh, be meeting over at First Baptist Church have a joint worship service they start their service at 1045 on the 18th and uh, um, and then next week following our uh, evening or our morning service or maybe before we'll uh, we'll go ahead and take the vote on uh, uh, entering into conversations with informal conversations about the possibility of merging our two congregations, bringing the churches together. So that'll be next week, and uh, um, we'll just uh, move forward with that and see where where it leads. So uh, um, next week we'll have a have a time of business together. Um, this Wednesday night we'll be back. Uh, uh, our normal schedule will be here at six thirty uh, in Isaiah chapter six on Wednesday night. So. Uh, uh, for our call to worship this morning, I invite you to take out, and also, by the way, I have not heard anything more about uh, from Camille about Miss Sarah's services. We are thinking sometime Thursday uh, at McNeese Morris in Fulton will be where those, where those services will be. Um, and so, uh, you know, just a lot of logistics uh, are being so far away. So, so right now, tentatively scheduled for sometime Thursday, and as soon as I know, I'll make sure y'all, y'all all know, so be in prayer for uh, her family as they uh, grieve and as they travel and as they gather here for uh, for her service later this week. Um, and if you would, take out your Bibles. Our call to worship this morning is going to come from the book of Job. We're going to look at Paul's defense of the, uh, his preaching of the resurrection. And uh, we are going to see that uh, the resurrection that Paul preached was not something new, but it was something that uh, uh, was essential, key to Judaism, uh, beginning with the fathers and the, the prophets. And it was uh, preaching the resurrection is not preaching something new, but it is pre preaching the fulfillment and the hope of Israel, the hope that they had from uh, the promises of God had made to them. And so our focus today is going to be on the resurrection and the proclamation, the preaching of the resurrection. And one of those Old Testament passages that clearly teaches this doctrine is in the book of Job. Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, you remember Job has uh, lost everything. He's buried 10 of his children. His wife has told him to curse God and die. And he's working through trying to understand all of this. And three of his friends have come to, uh, to provide counsel. And then Job chapter 19 Verse 23, Job says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. That in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful this morning to be able to gather together around your word, Lord, and we're thank, thankful that your word proclaims to us the resurrection, not only the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also the resurrection of all, the just and the unjust, the righteous to everlasting life, the unrighteous, the unjust, to everlasting shame and contempt. And so, Lord, we gather together today, and 
Lord, we pray that you, you would help us to draw great hope and comfort from the truth of the resurrection. And that by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our resurrections are assured and that we can stand before you, not clothed in our own righteousness, which is like filthy rags, but we can stand before you clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, his sinless life, uh, his atoning death, having paid the debt for our sin, and his resurrection, uh, ensuring that sacrifice has been accepted. And also by our union with him, we can stand clothed in his righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to earnestly serve, walking by faith, trusting your grace, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may stand before you and we may hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord, the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. Lord, thank you for this glorious doctrine of the resurrection. And Lord, may that truth draw our hearts to worship you this morning. Lord, may we, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, offer you worship that is in spirit and in truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would, take out your hymnal and turn to hymn 122, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Right, as we continue to worship this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts, Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at a longer text today than we uh, normally do, but a lot of it is review. As Festus, the governor, uh, describes the situation to uh, Agrippa, the king, and uh, his sister, Bernice, who have come, and uh, uh, they will hear Paul's case, and so Festus shares the dilemma that he has found himself in. Uh, Agrippa agrees to hear him, and then Paul is going to give a defense, uh, focusing on the resurrection. Remember, he has said before, he said numerous times, it is because of the resurrection that I am on trial. The key issue is the issue, the doctrine of the resurrection that Paul preaches, and we will see today his defense of the resurrection from uh, the Old Testament scriptures, and, uh, and then we will uh, uh, continue to look at his defense, his transformed life next week, Lord willing. And so Acts chapter 25, beginning in the 13th verse, you remember Paul's been in prison for two years, the governor has changed, and now Paul has appealed his case to Caesar, and so he is remaining in prison until uh, things can be put together to transport him to Rome where he may be able to appear before Caesar and uh, state his case. And so in, Matthew, in Acts chapter 25, verse 13, Acts chapter 25, verse 13, we pick up the events with the arrival of King Agrippa and Bernice. Acts 25, verse 13, And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus, the new governor. When they'd been there many days, Festus, laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation 
against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether uh, he would, would, was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commander, the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write, my Lord, concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word and for your truth. And Lord, we are thankful for the hope of the resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace as we study this day, as we look at this text. Lord, that you would help us to consider the doctrine, the truth of the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the resurrection of all that will stand before you. And Lord, we pray that by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, that we would be motivated to live in the light of the resurrection. Trusting in your grace, walking by faith, and earnestly serving in the power of the Holy Spirit that we might attain a resurrection from the dead and that we might hear your words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Teach us by your Spirit, and then Lord, help us to walk in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
And so at the beginning of this text, it's kind of a review, things that we have looked at before going uh, through the, uh, the book of Acts, and we have seen that Paul has been in prison for two years. And we've talked about the fact you can only imagine how frustrating that must be for the Apostle Paul. You know, he was a man on the go, a man on the move. He had made three missionary journeys, going where Christ was not known and making Christ known and leaving newly planted churches in his wake, in his path. And then he would go on journeys and he would go back to those churches and encourage them and plant new churches in other places where the gospel was not known. And for two years, he had been in prison. Two years, he had been in jail. Unable to go, unable to travel. His friends were able to come and see him, but ultimately he was not able to go and to preach the name of Jesus. He was not able to travel. He was not able to go from town to town. And he only had limited opportunities as Felix would call him from time to time to come and discuss with him. And Paul was faithful every time Felix brought him forward to talk about, the, uh, talk about righteousness, to talk about the judgment that was to come and to talk about self-control. And so for two years, Paul was in prison, had very limited opportunities to share the word of Christ, to fulfill the call upon his life, to be an ambassador, to be a missionary for the gospel of Jesus. And we can only imagine how discouraging, how frustrating that must have been for Paul for two years. But now we see he is brought before a group of very prominent people. Luke describes it for us in verse 23. Agrippa the king, Bernice his sister, they came with great pomp and they entered the auditorium and in that auditorium were the commanders and the prominent men of the city. And so basically now, after two years of being silenced, Paul is going to get the opportunity to address the who's who of Caesarea. All the prominent people in the town the commanders of the Roman army, the king and his sister, and all of the governor and his family, all of these prominent people have arrived, and Paul is going to get an opportunity to testify before all these important people, all these influencers, all these powerful people. He is going to get an opportunity to stand before them and proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes, you know, as we see in this text, sometimes our greatest opportunity comes after periods of discouragement and frustration. Paul in prison, two years, limited opportunity, and now the who's who of Caesarea is gathered for the express purpose of hearing Paul talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so sometimes we go through life in our fallen world and things are discouraging, things are frustrating, things aren't working out the way that we had planned. Uh, our expectations have been dashed. We're not experiencing... Uh, 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 great times and sometimes it's those times of difficulty and frustration and discouragement that can lead to our greatest opportunities and we certainly see this with the case of Paul and we also see an important uh, 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 important lesson in, in, in sharing your personal testimony you know uh, Paul is going to be called before these people and we're going to see uh, uh, we're not going to cover it all today but basically Paul gives us an outline when we have an opportunity to share our faith. Peter tells us that we need to always be ready. 
We need to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And we need to do it with gentleness and respect, as we see that Paul does here. But Paul also gives us an outline. When he has this opportunity before all the commanders, the prominent people, the king and his sister, the governor and his wife, all of these people have gathered together, and Paul uses a three-point outline. He talks about his life before he met Jesus. He talks about how he met Jesus, and he talks about how his life has been transformed since meeting Jesus. And so that's a good outline for us. We're commanded to, uh, commanded to be ready to give a reason for the hope, and so maybe that's something we can think through. What was my life like before I met Jesus? How did I meet Jesus, and how has my life been changed? How has my life been transformed? And so uh, those are a couple of big big thoughts about this text and we're going to focus in on the resurrection but I wanted to share those two overall thoughts of this empire this entire section of Paul's hearing before Agrippa and Bernice and so those are the the big things but the 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 detail I want to focus on today is the fact that Paul defends the doctrine of the resurrection he defends the doctrine of the resurrection and he does it in two ways he uses the Old Testament scriptures the word of God to Israel, the word of God in the Old Testament that clearly sets forth the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul is saying, I'm not preaching a new religion. I'm not preaching a new doctrine. I am simply proclaiming the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, the, uh, their, their hope that came through the promises that God had made to them in the word of God and to their fathers. This is not a new doctrine. This is a fulfillment of the doctrine. And then the second way he defends the doctrine of the resurrection is related to his testimony, he points to his resurrected life, his transformed life since meeting Jesus. And that, Lord willing, is what we will talk about next week. But today I want to focus on the resurrection in the Old Testament scriptures, the resurrection uh, as the hope of Israel based on the promises that God had given to them through their fathers and ultimately through the Old Testament scriptures. That, that's our focus. And so uh, Felix... Or Festus, the new governor, King Agrippa and Bernice come to greet him and welcome him to his new office. The king is uh, a little higher in rank than the governor. The king is kind of ruling over the home realm, whole realm, and there's kind of governors around that help him administrate his rule. And so this is King Agrippa, whose father is uh, Agrippa I. This is Agrippa II. Agrippa I uh, murdered James, put James to the sword in Acts chapter 2. His grandfather... Uh, Herod murdered John the Baptist and his great-grandfather was Herod the Great that tried, trying to kill Jesus, murdered all the two-year-old baby boys uh, in the vicinity of Beth Bethlehem. And so this man uh, uh, has quite a legacy and he understands a lot about the conflict between Judaism and Christianity. And, uh, and so this is King Agrippa and Bernice is actually his sister. But King Agrippa II and Bernice lived together, and most of the people, uh, there were a lot of rumors about the fact that Agrippa and Bernice were more than just brothers and sisters. And so they uh, lived together, and they come together, they travel together, they come to this hearing together, uh, uh, sinful lifestyle, uh, corruption, and political uh, uh, disputes, all of these things come together, and they come to greet Festus, and Festus tells them about the problem that Felix had left him. Felix has left me a big problem. There's this man named Paul, and the Jews want to kill him. And they are not satisfied with any 
any verdict other than killing him, putting him to death, and yet he has done nothing to violate Roman law. I have nothing with which to charge him. But you also see that Festus, he gets to the bottom line. Festus knows the real issue. He says the same thing that Paul had said. Look at, look at verse 19. What is the issue? What is the problem? Why are the Jews mad at him? Verse 19, they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And so Festus, inexperienced young governor, but he was able to sort through all of the shouts and all the accusation and all the things that had happened in the hearing before, and he got to the bottom line. This is a religious dispute, and it's about the resurrection from the dead, specifically the resurrection of a man named Jesus. And so Festus tells the king, this is the bottom line. It's a religious dispute. He has done nothing violating Roman law. He has done nothing deserving of death. And because it's a religious dispute, I offered to go to the seat, the heart of their religion, and hear the case there, but Paul refused. Instead, he appealed his case to Caesar. And because he's a Roman citizen, that's his right. I've got to send him to Caesar. But then that gives me a problem. I, I can't send him to Caesar, Caesar without specifying the charges. <laughs> this man is going to the Supreme Court, to the emperor, to the king. He's being sent... I, i got to tell the king of what he's accused. What has he done? Why has he uh, been in prison for two years? Why is he being sent? What is the charges that he is appealing? And Festus basically told the king, I don't have anything to write. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that he's done. There's no reason for him to be put to death, much less be put in chains, and yet... Felix kept him in chains for two years, and we got to send him to Caesar, but we don't have anything to accuse him about. Maybe, Agrippa, with your experience and all your legacy and all of that, maybe you can hear him and help me come up with something to write, <laughs> to send to Caesar the reason why he has had to appeal his court, his case to you, to the highest court in the land, in their uh, jurisprudence, the emperor himself. And so Agrippa says, okay, I'll hear. And so Paul is brought in, and again, this great opportunity. He's brought in everybody who is somebody, the pro every prominent person, the military commanders, the governor, the king, all the prominent people, they enter, and Paul is brought in, and he gets this opportunity to offer his defense. And ultimately, it is all about the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul takes this opportunity, and it's interesting, you know, Paul does not confront Agrippa and Bernice with their sinfulness. He does not talk about the sinless life of Jesus. He does not talk about the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus. He simply speaks of the resurrection, confronting the people with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of all people, the just and the unjust, hoping that if they come to grips with the resurrection, then they will ask the other questions about uh, his life and his death what was it about this man that God raised him from the dead? And so he focuses on this key issue, the resurrection, because again, that is the primary accusation against him, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. Because if the Jews admit that Jesus has risen from the dead, then they would be admitting that they had rejected their Messiah, they had rejected their Christ, they had put him to death, and they would be admitting their guilt. And, and you know, some people sometimes 
are very unwilling to admit that they're wrong. <laughs> they're unwilling to admit they're wrong. Even if there's overwhelming evidence to the fact that they're wrong, for some reason in our humanness, we are stubborn, we are resistant to ever saying the words, you know what, I was wrong. <laughs> and so they refuse that, and they refuse it so bitterly that they have determined that Paul must be put to death because he persists in saying that we were wrong. <laughs> and so they rejected him. So let's look at Paul's defense of the resurrection. And so he begins his words, gentleness and respect. He speaks to the king. He recognizes his experience. And then Paul gets right to the bottom line. In verse 4. Verse 4 is really the heart of our text. And so Paul defends the doctrine of the resurrection by pointing out that the resurrection of Jesus is a fulfillment of the hope of Israel based on the promises that God had made to the fathers in the word of God. He is saying that th I, this is not a new religion. I'm not preaching something outside of Judaism. I am preaching the fulfillment of Judaism in their Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's look at how he does this. First, he begins with his own Jewishness. Verse 4. Paul says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent beginning among my own nation. And so Paul points out that he himself is Jewish. He is an ethnic Jew. This is his nation. His accusers are his people, his nation, his brothers, his family. He says, I myself am Jewish. I am a descendant of Abraham. And through Abraham, I'm a descendant of Isaac and a descendant of Jacob and a descendant of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. I myself am a Jew. These are my brothers. These, I am of that nation. And these people know that I've got the ethnicity, the genealogy that gives me authority to speak about these things. I am a descendant of Benjamin, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. I am a Jew. And this is my own nation. Not only that, look what he says, uh, I, I spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem. And so we know that Paul had been born in Tarsus, but he had been raised in Jerusalem. And so he was born in Tarsus, got his Roman citizenship, which we see that God has providentially used to protect him and uh, to get him to Caesar and is using him to give him this audience. He was born in Tarsus, born a Roman citizen, but he was raised in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, the center of Judaism, the, the, the place of religious and political authority among the Jews, the capital city, the, where the temple was. I was raised in Jerusalem, in the heart of Judaism, the center of Judaism, the place of all religious and political power and authority and education. I was raised in Jerusalem. I am a Jew I was raised in Jerusalem, and all of these Jews that are accusing me, they can testify to that effect. It's not a new thing for me. It's been my whole life. I am a Jew. I was raised a Jew. I was educated as a Jew, and I am still a Jew. And I'm simply pre pre preaching the fulfillment of Judaism. And so he goes on. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now this is kind of interesting. So uh, he was born a Jew, he was raised in Jerusalem, and he was trained according 
to the sect of Phariseeism. Now, remember one of the accusations against, uh, against Paul? You remember back a few chapters ago? They accused him of, 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 of uh, preaching the sect of the way. And a sect is a group of people who because of their unique de- de- beliefs, their unique doctrines, they kind of separate themselves from the main body and they come over here and they're this sect, this breakaway group. And so Paul had been accused of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, the sect of the way. You remember that accusation when he was in Jerusalem. But here Paul uses that same word to describe the Pharisees. They accused Christianity to be a sect of Judaism. And Paul says, well, actually the Pharisees are a sect. They have been separated out. In fact, what's their name means? To be separated to be set apart, they separated themselves from the rank-and-file Jews by their meticulous and rigorous study of the law and application of the law to every single aspect of, of life, every single decision that's been made. And they studied the law and they found out the law wasn't enough for them, so they made up a whole bunch of new laws and enforced those laws and brought those things on. And so, so Paul, Paul actually says, not only was I born a Jew, raised in Jerusalem, but I was trained in the sect of the Pharisees, the strictest branch of Judaism, the, the ones that study the word, study the law of God, and then try to apply the law of God to every aspect of life. I've been trained as a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees in our day have a bad name because the gospel writers focused on their opposition to Jesus. They were so studious, they were so rigorous in their study of the law and their application of the law that they began to focus on outward performance, on just doing the right thing and not focused on why they were doing the right thing. They they were focused on outward performance and not the inward transformation of the heart. And so Jesus was always confronting them as being hypocrites because they were only concerned about the outward. They were not concerned about the inward. And we see their opposition. So we have a bad taste in our mouths about the Pharisees, but these people would know that those were the most religious people. They lived the most holy, separated lives. They were trying to apply God's law to every single minute of every single day. They were rigid in their observance of the law. And so Paul says, I was strict. Strict in studying the law and strict in applying the law. I am a Jew. I was raised in Jerusalem. I was trained as a Pharisee, studying the scriptures, studying the law, studying the word of God. Studying the prophets, studying the Psalms, and seeking to apply those things to my life. And so Paul presents his defense. I'm a Jew, was raised in Jerusalem, I was trained in Phariseeism, trained to study the Bible. And you know what I found in the Bible? Paul says in verse 6, I now stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So why am I being judged? I am being judged because I am proclaiming that the hope of Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus. I am standing accused because I am proclaiming that all the promises that God made to our fathers has been fulfilled in Jesus. I was born a Jew, I was raised a Jew, and I am still a Jew proclaiming the fulfillment of the hope, the accomplishment of the promises 
of God that he made to our fathers. And so he's not, he's not preaching some new religion. No, he is preaching the fulfillment, the realization, the accomplishment of all the promises that God made to the people. And that the hope of Israel, that Christ that they prayed for, what they were looking forward to, he has come, his name is Jesus. And so he says, I now stand in him judged for the hope of the promise made to God by our fathers. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about the doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament. The only scripture Paul had as he was being raised as a Pharisee was the, the Old Testament. And we go all the way back to Abraham, back uh, the father of the Jews, the father of the nation. The one that God had called out and promised that he would give him land, he would give him seed, and he would give him blessing, and he would make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of Judaism, the father of many nations, and among those nations was Israel, who God would bless all the, the, the people of the world, all the nations of the world. And that blessing would come through the son of the promise, the son named Isaac. And so all of the promises that God made to Abraham were embodied in Isaac, his seed. The descendants of Isaac would inherit the land. The descendants of Isaac would grow into a great nation that would be a blessing to all the earth. And God came to Abraham and told him to offer Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. To sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. All the promises that God made to Abraham were embodied in his son Isaac and his seed Isaac, the son of the promise. And God told him to go and slay him. And what did Abraham do? He set out. He took his son. He built an altar. He arranged the wood on the altar. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the wood. Stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay Isaac. How could Abraham do that? Not only is this his son, the son that he loves, but he is also the embodiment of every promise that God had ever made to him. If Abraham's going to have seed, it's going to come through Isaac. If he's going to have land, Isaac's descendants are going to inherit it. If he's going to be a blessing to the nations, that's going to be through Isaac and through his seed. How could Abraham do that? How could he bind him and lay him on the wood and stretch out his hand and take the knife to slay him? Well, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us how Abraham could do that. Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Father Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection. And then as we read Job, you know, Job experienced more tragedy than anybody we can imagine. He'd lost everything in one day, and he had even, he had buried ten children. Seven sons, three daughters. He had laid in the ground. And then he himself was covered with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he struggled with that. 
And, 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 and in Job 14, 14, Job finally asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? And five chapters later, after, after thinking on this question, Job comes out and says the words that we read earlier in the call to worship. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know in my flesh. I shall see God. Job believed and proclaimed and declared the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. My Redeemer lives and I will live, not just in spirit, but in my flesh. I will see God. Job believed in the resurrection. And the Psalms are full of the doctrine of the resurrection. The Psalms speak of speak of. Uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the one to whom God promises long life and length of days. God promises that he will not abandon the soul of his Holy One in Sheol. And God promises that his Holy One will not see decay. The Psalms full of the teaching of the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, will be raised from the dead. His soul will not be abandoned to Sheol and his body will not decay. But he will have long life and length of days. And not only does the Psalms teach of the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, the greater son of David, but Psalm twenty-two, twenty-nine says, all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. The Psalms the doctrine of the resurrection. What about the prophets? Well, we have some explicit statements in the prophets. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Get any clearer than that? <laughs> Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Isaiah explicitly teaches the resurrection, as does Daniel. Daniel chapter, two, verse, chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. And so Paul says, I'm a Jew. I was raised in Jerusalem, the heart, the center of religious thought for the Jews. I was trained in the strictest sect, the sect of the Pharisees, committing myself to study the word of God, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And what I found in the law and the writings and the prophets was that the resurrection of the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead is the hope of J Jerusalem based in the promises that God made to our fathers. And then even Jesus, after he was raised from the dead and he came upon his followers that were very discouraged and very sad, And Jesus said to them, Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into glory? He rebuked them for not believing the things that were written in the Scripture. If you studied the Old Testament Scripture, you ought to see that the Messiah had to suffer, suffer death before he would enter into his glory. 
Ought not the Christ have suffered these things before he entered into his glory? And then Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in all the scripture the things concerning himself. And so Paul stands there, he defends himself. He says, I was born a Jew, I was raised a Jew, I've always been a Jew, and I am still a Jew. I am simply proclaiming the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to the fathers, and I am pro proclaiming that the hope of Israel has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, in his sinless life, his atoning death, and his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says that, and then in, uh, uh, in verse 7, he says that even the fathers believed the doctrine of the resurrection. You know, God made the promise, and it wasn't obscure. It wasn't something that we have found later. No, it was something that they understood and that they applied to their lives, and they lived their life a certain way because they believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. Look what he says in verse 7. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. And so Paul's saying, this is not something I made up. It's not something I discovered. It's not some new doctrine. It's not some new teaching. It's not that I had Jesus and I went in the Old Testament and tried to find uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. No, no, it's from the very beginning. Even our fathers understood the promise and they understood the, the, uh, the hope. And because they believed in the resurrection of the dead, they served God earnestly that they might attain it. Just like Abraham. Why, how, why was he able to obey God, fear God, and take the life of his son Isaac? Because he believed in the resurrection. And then Paul says, the 12 tribes, not just Abraham, but all 12 tribes, all 12 tribes believed in the doctrine of the resurrection and they served God hoping to attain it. They had the promises of God and they had the scripture and they believed that all the promises of God could not be fulfilled in this life, that this world is so utterly and completely and totally sinful that the only hope is for there to be a new world, a new creation and earth, and these bodies are, are affected by sin to the very core. These bodies are temporary and corrupted by sin. How we think is corrupted by sin. How we act is corrupted by sin. Even our genetic makeup is corrupted by sin. We get sick. We die. The only hope is for there to be a new creation and a new heaven and a new earth. And the only hope is for this body to be laid in the ground and be raised a new body. And so they believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. And what did that motivate them to do? To earnestly serve God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that some are going to be raised to everlasting life. Some are going to be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. And so what did they do? They strove for righteousness. They earnestly served God day and night, hoping to attain the resurrection from the dead. They sought to live by faith. And by their faith, through their faith, to serve God, hoping that they might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul, Paul even says the same thing about himself. About him forgetting what is behind. And striving toward the resurrection of the dead. Paul says in Philippians 
chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness which is by God, from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his image, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But when we're saved by grace uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us to strive to earnestly serve God. And our perseverance and our preservation, serving with the hope that we might obtain that we might attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says, even the Jews believe this. I'm on trial because I'm preaching the resurrection. And even they believe it. And for generations, for thousands of years, they believed it and they've tried to serve God that they might obtain it. This is nothing new. This is the hope of Israel, the fulfillment of the prophecies. Everything that God promised Israel has been fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is their Christ. He is their Messiah. He is the promised Savior. He is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. This is nothing new. This is the fulfillment of all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of the promises that God had made to them. And so Paul then looks at Agrippa himself being a Jew. And he says... Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? (laughs) From the very beginning, the resurrection was not God's plan B. Oh, Adam blew it. What am I going to do? Oh, Israel is uh, apostate. What am I going to do? No, the resurrection was God's plan from the very beginning. Because he created a holy people so they could know him, but he knew it would be necessary for them to redeem them from their sins. So God the Son made a covenant with God the Father that he would leave the glory of heaven, he would come to earth, live a sinless life, die in the place of people, and be raised from the dead and exalted and gather to him his church from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. That was God's plan from before the foundation of the earth. This is not something new. It should not be surprising to you. And so you notice Paul knows that it's because of the resurrection. Even Festus knows That the whole dispute is about a certain man named Jesus who died, but Paul claims is alive. And so Paul focuses on that issue, the resurrection. And he shows from the scriptures that the resurrection is the hope, the promise of Israel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel and every promise that God has made to them. So when we think about this doctrine of the resurrection, we are confronted. If Jesus is risen, what does that say about who he is? What does it say about his person? What does it say about his life? What does it say about his death? If Jesus is raised and we're confronted, to ask, what do you believe about Jesus? The resurrection shows that he is God, that he is life. And that it was impossible for the grave to hold him because he is the the source of life, the origin of life. He is God himself. What does the resurrection say about his life? That it was sinless. 
that he did not deserve to die. The resurrection vindicates Jesus and shows his righteousness. What does it say about his death? That he did not die for himself, but he died for the sins of his people. As a sacrifice, as a sin offering. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might know the righteousness of God, he died in our place. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead vindicates him. Shows that he is fully God, he lived a sinless life, and he died in our place, and his sacrifice has been accepted. And that's all through the scriptures. It's not something new, but it's something true. And we are confronted with the reality of the resurrection. And we are confronted with our need to run to him to find safety. And also this doctrine of the resurrection that, uh, that Paul talks about, that the, the people who believe that the doctrine of the resurrection, they earnestly serve God that they might attain it. And this is not teaching that we're saved by our works. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit creates in us good works. A striving that we might be found faithful. A striving that we might not just have the righteousness that was credited to our account, but we might have practical righteousness. That we might grow in righteousness. And Paul says, I forget all those things behind me. I was born a Jew. I was raised a Jew. I was trained in Phariseeism. See, next week I tried to kill the Christians. I had all the things that a person would, could have, all the, the marks of success, but I consider all those things lost. And I press forward, keeping my eye on the prize, that I might obtain, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And so even though we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that salvation by grace creates in us the desire to persevere, to grow in righteousness, to grow in faith, and to serve earnestly that we might obtain the hope of Israel. Realize the promises of God. Because I believe that my Redeemer lives. And on the earth, you shall stand. And after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh, I will see God. And I desperately want to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Strive earnestly that we might attain it. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for this great truth. And Lord, we are thankful that we stand in the presence of a risen Savior. Highly exalted. The name that is above every name. And Lord, may we consider the implications of the fact that He is risen. What it means about His person. What it means about His life. What it means about His death. Fully God. Fully righteous. Dying in our place. The resurrection proving it. And also, Lord, we pray that we would be motivated to strive earnestly, to forget those things that are behind, keep our eye on the goal, and strive forward that we might attain the resurrection from the dead and that we might be raised to everlasting life. 
by your grace, through our faith in Jesus, that is demonstrated through our works, our striving, our service. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal again and